I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to IntroVets Podcast. Hello. Today, we have a case for you. Ooh. And I do just want to apologize ahead of time uh, that I am getting over a cold. In fact, this is like my first day back working after being down for the count for like a few solid days. Um, So you're going to potentially notice some changes in my voice and I maybe sound congested, but it was either this or no episode. So (laughs) deal with it. Okay. How do you really feel? Now, as always, when we present a case, we do so anonymously. That means that uh, we are not going to give away anything as far as like the names or places. We're going to withhold the real name of the patient. We're not going to say the name of the veterinarian, et cetera, et cetera, to protect the innocence of the dog in this case. Mm. Now, uh, also, Small details of the case that did not affect the outcome might also be changed to help protect the identity of the patient. Because we love the patient. That's right. People, yeah, maybe. Yeah, also, I mean, I like people too, most of the time. (laughs) But the dog, for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, JJ. Uh Uh-huh. Take it away with the case. Okay. Callie. Callie is an eight-year-old female spade German shepherd. She's presenting to a regular veterinarian for a sick appointment due to vomiting and not acting right. She's ADR. Uh, The owner came home from work to find her pacing and drooling by the back door. And the owner let her outside and saw her vomit a few times from the kitchen window. And when she didn't immediately come back inside, the owner went out to the yard to check on her. It was hard to see the vomit in the grass. So the owner doesn't know if she vomited up any objects. Uh, She has been known to shred toys, but hasn't really eaten anything recently that the owner knows of. And the owner called and brought her in because she won't settle down and keeps dry heaving. Uh Yikes. Okay. Sounds a little suspicious. Mm -hmm. Okay, Jojay. So uh, what was seen on physical exam? So she was panting. Her abdomen was tense on palpation, and she was mildly distended in the abdomen. Uh, tachycardia is noted, mucous membranes are pale pink and tacky, and she's occasionally retching without vomiting, also salivating a lot, a.k.a. hypersalivation. Okay, well, um, <laughs> let's talk about some potential differentials based on this information. I mean, there's one glaring. Okay, what is it? Bloat. Yeah, so this dog is likely experiencing bloat or GDV, mm-hmm. um, gastric dilatation and volvulus. Uh, but, you know, we can't say that necessarily 100% just based on physical exam alone. So maybe let's add some other differentials. Okay, mm-hmm. so some other type of like GI issue, foreign object, you know. Pancreatitis. Yeah, yeah. Maybe some other type of GI obstruction for some other reason. Maybe she's got like a mass. I mean, it is kind of an older-ish, yeah, eight-year-old German Shepherd, okay? Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not a GDV, but some other type of torsion, uh, splenic or mesenteric torsion, something like that. Possible toxicity. Yeah, I mean, I think anytime you have a patient that's hypersalivating and kind of seeming anxious, that needs to be on our list as well. But the most alarming of these differentials would be something like a bloat. Um, That's an emergency. Yeah. So what happened next? They took her to radiology. Okay. And what did the x-rays show? 
right lateral abdominal radiograph showed a classic double bubble sign. GDV confirmed. Okay. So this is going to be a GDV. Smells like it. Walks like a duck. That's right. All the things. So tell us about GDV, Dr. Crado. Okay. Well, GDV stands for gastric dilatation in volvulus. Gastric dilatation is distension of the stomach. Mm-hmm. And volvulus is the rotation of the stomach along its long axis. Your stomach is a balloon animal. <laughs> yes, it, that's exactly right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, now when the stomach enlarges and rotates, pressure in the stomach goes up. It disrupts blood flow and circulatory shock or systemic inflammatory response syndrome or both then occur. Yikes. Yep. So what makes this happen? Well, we don't really think that there's a single cause. It's probably multifactorial, but we have definitely identified some risk factors. So this list of risk factors that I'm about to read are the risk factors that are pretty consistent across the research. Genetics. Okay, so having a first-degree relative with a history of GDV increases your risk significantly. Uh, But it's likely polygenic, meaning there's probably not one single mutation that causes this. Uh, It's probably lots of different factors, but genetics does play a strong role. And we'll see that when we talk a little bit about uh, some of the breed predispositions here in a little bit. If you have a high thoracic depth to width ratio, so a very deep chested dog, um, one of those dogs that you, you know, roll over for um, dorsal recumbency <laughs> and it's like a mountain peak sticking up there. Okay. Mm-hmm. Dogs that are middle aged to older age, more common in, in, that, uh, in that age range. The presence of ileus or some type of trauma. So if the GI tract is already pissed off and kind of in a state of stasis for some reason or any other sort of traumatic event. If the patient has gastric motility disorders, so inside the stomach things do not move appropriately for some reason, they have a history of vomiting recently, eating one really super huge meal, (laughs) yeah, stress, Mm -hmm. and the thing that I typically see this with is going to be boarding, okay? I mean, I can't even tell you. I've worked before at facilities that had large boarding areas and being the on-call doctor, like how many damn bloats did I see across Mm -hmm. that? What, almost 15 years of working at those facilities as the vet? Yes. Like what the crap? It is humongously imperative to train your kennel staff to recognize bloat. Yeah. Because it will save a dog's life. It saved my dog's life. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to talk about snuffy hair in a little while for sure. Yeah. So um, this next one also applies to snuffy. Having a fearful or anxious temperament. Bless her. Yeah. And then I'm going to say splenectomy question mark. Okay. So when I started this list, I said all of the things I'm about to say are consistent across studies. The splenectomy thing is not consistent. So some studies show there's an increased risk of GDV post-splenectomy, and some say, nope, Hmm. that's not accurate. Interesting. Now, as you're reading research about this, you might run into other potential risk factors because there is a super long list Mm -hmm. of things that people have thought at different times might increase the risk, but the data has been unclear across time, okay? That's a big list, and I didn't want to just read them, but I'm going to kind of highlight the big ones. 
low body weight, uh, recent anesthetic events, and the presence of inflammatory bowel disease. All of those have been thought to be uh, negative, uh, or all of those have thought to be potential contributing factors, uh, but research is not consistent in those areas. And then there's some factors that have been found to be protective in some studies, meaning if this is the case, you're less likely to have a GDV. But then in other studies, turns around and it's like, no, actually, this is a risk factor. So Mm. (laughs) all over Mm. the place. Okay. And those are moderate exercise after eating and moistening food or adding canned food to the diet. So sometimes people are like, oh, this is preventative. And sometimes they're like, no, actually, that makes it more likely to happen. I don't know. Yeah, I've always been (laughs) heard, you know, the need to not run around and exercise after eating for at least an hour. Yeah. To help prevent. Some studies show that that's the case. And some studies show that the exercise is actually protective. So we just maybe it just depends on the dog. Like if the dog has like. Shows really great increased motility with exercise or something, but I, I it don't know. could be individual factors. I'm going to say if some studies show that it's it results in better outcomes, and some studies show that it creates GDV, that like probably it's somewhere in the middle and yeah. a coincidence. Yeah, it makes me you know just slightly. I mean, I don't allow my golden to exercise for at least an hour after she eats because. She hoovers her food. Yeah. And I add a little bit of water to it because the breeder has suggested it. I mean, I'm, I don't know. I, she seems to like it. I just put oh. with it with her dry food. But now I'm like, <laughs> believe me, when she gets spayed, she's getting tacked <laughs> so fast. <laughs> We're going to talk about that here in a little <clears throat> bit, too. Okay. So tell me about the pathophysiology. NGDV. Fluid and gas cannot exit the stomach normally, meaning that they're not going out down the exit, (laughs) down the pylorus, and they're unable to come back up (laughs) through the esophagus. So the stomach distends, fluid, gas, and ingesta accumulate. Okay, now the twisting, the volvulus might happen before or after the distension of the stomach. So it's not like the distension always happens first. It can happen at any point. When volvulus occurs, A secondary splenic torsion might also happen because the spleen is attached by the gastrosplenic ligaments and vessels. Mm -hmm. The caudal vena cava and portal veins are affected by the gastric distension, and they literally get squeezed off like that stomach is inflating like a balloon. Those vessels aren't like rigid pipes. They're like flexible little tubies, Mm -hmm. and so they just get compressed. It's a band name. Flexible little tubies. Flexible little tubies. Very good. Okay. So because these vessels are kind of squeezed off, there is less blood returning back up to the heart. So the venous return back up to the heart is decreased. And as a result, we get hypovolemic shock, hypotension, like low blood pressure, and then venous stasis. We've got the blood kind of sitting in the venous system instead of going to the heart and going back into circulation like it should. So we have then insufficient blood flow to multiple organs, including the stomach, because if the blood can't make its way back up to the heart, go through the lungs to become oxygenated, and then back out the heart on the other side, then it's not delivering oxygenated blood to the little organs. Which is all very bad. That's right. That's, that's uncool. 
And uh, we might even see like a hemoabdomen if the gastric vessels evolve, like they pop. Ooh, gross. <laughs> I've, all, I've actually also seen a hemoabdomen with this one time from uh, when the spleen was like affected by the torsion. It literally like ripped those mm-hmm. vessels and the, and the spleen was bleeding. That was a bad one. I yeah, I don't think one. you really want the spleen to bleed. You don't want anything to bleed. but Really not ideal, right? No. <laughs> uh, but it can happen. Okay, and if we get a hemoabdomen, then obviously the shock and decreased perfusion to the organs is worse because you got blood leaking into the belly instead of going where it's supposed to go. And because the heart muscle itself is not getting sufficient oxygen, cardiac output further decreases. We might also see cardiac arrhythmias as a result. And the patient might start having trouble breathing. We might see dyspnea. That's because it's physically difficult to move that diaphragm because that large stomach is in the way. And there's also less room for the lungs to expand. This obviously makes the hypoxia worse. <laughs> so we have like a triple threat to tissue perfusion. Septic shock can also occur if stomach perforation occurs or if the gastric mucosal barrier has been disrupted and bacteria then translocates across it and gets into little bloodstream there's just no winning <laughs> this is a bad i mean this is a bad syndrome like gdv sucks yeah it super sucks you 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 better get it in time <laughs> yeah so jj yep what sorts of things would you expect to see on a physical examination of a dog that is presenting with gdv you shall see restlessness distended abdomen retching without production or dry heaving hypersalivation, trouble breathing or dyspnea, collapse, painful, intense abdomen, splenomegaly, mm-hmm. am I saying that? Yeah, big spleen. Tachycardia, tachypnea, poor pulse quality, pale mucous membranes, increased capillary refill time, and sometimes sudden death will occur. Mm-hmm. Eee, all bad. Yeah, sometimes you just come home and the patient is just dead. What sorts of test results would support a diagnosis of a GDV? Well, there are a number of things that you can consider running. I mean, imaging is really going to be the big thing that tells mm-hmm. you the yes, no. But here's some things that you might find. So on a complete blood count, you might see hemoconcentration or a stress leukogram and maybe even leukopenia, so low white blood cells, if the patient is in septic shock. And then thrombocytopenia or low platelets if the pet is starting to go into DIC, disseminated intravascular coagulation. On a biochemistry profile, you might see azotemia, low albumin, elevated bilirubin, elevated lipase, increased liver enzymes like ALT or ALP, low potassium, and signs of metabolic acidosis. If you were to check PLI, you might find that that's elevated. And then lactate. Lactate is, in my experience, not run a whole bunch in like general private small animal practice. But on the ER side, we run a lactate quite often. Mm -hmm. So you're going to see potentially elevated lactate in these guys. And this can serve as a prognostic indicator. Now, we don't know how much a single elevation is correlated with prognosis. Okay, we do know that if the lactate is over six millimoles per liter, that's not great. It's associated with gastric necrosis. 
But that doesn't necessarily mean that you, you know, check a patient in that's GDV, you run a lactate and it's eight, that you should just euthanize them, right? Because we have studies that show that those patients can survive. Mm -hmm. So here's what the research says. There's one study that shows that a lactate of less than six at presentation is associated with like a 99% chance of survival, okay? So if you check that lactate and it's less than six, okay, that's pretty good. Pretty excited about that. And that was compared to a survival rate of 58% when the lactate was over six at presentation. So it, it seems to have some bearing, but it, a lactate over six doesn't meet automatic death sentence. Now, measuring the response of lactate to IV fluid administration might be a much better way to predict outcome. So in dogs who initially present with a high lactate, like we're talking like greater than nine, pretty high, who received IV fluids and uh, their lactate reduced by four or more points, if you will, they had a 90% survival rate. So it might be that it's not just a single high elevation that's the most important thing, but the response of that elevation to appropriate treatment that allows us to judge the prognosis. Mm -hmm. So other tests. Well, if you're running coagulation profile, it's going to be abnormal if they're in DIC. Mm -hmm. Hypotension is very common, so you're likely to see low blood pressure. Radiographs are probably the mainstay of diagnosis for GDV. And that classic view that you want to have is that right lateral abdomen. This is the best choice for diagnosis, and in that, you're going to see what's called a double bubble or, if you prefer, a reverse C or Popeye's arm sign, <laughs> and that's caused by air in the pylorus and the fundus. So with this sign, the air-filled fundus will be ventral, so more towards the, the um, belly area, and the smaller air-filled pylorus is dorsal, so towards the back. And there will be this band of tissue opacity that separates the two. That's what makes it the double bubble appearance. You might also see a big spleen, decreased serosal detail, and maybe a pneumoperitoneum, meaning gas in the belly, if the stomach has ruptured. And if you were to take x-rays of the chest, you might see a small vena cava, esophageal dilation, microcardia, so a small heart, and then potentially signs of aspiration pneumonia. Mm -hmm. ECG is not going to give you a diagnosis of GDV, but is an important part of monitoring and assessment because cardiac arrhythmias are common. We just talked about why that happens. Mm -hmm. Arrhythmias might be present when the dog first presents, or they can develop up to 72 hours after initial presentation. And you're going to see potentially a range of things, atrial fibrillation, supraventricular tachycardia, ventricular tachycardia, or premature ventricular contractions are the most common things that you'll see. And you might also find that cardiac biomarkers like cardiac troponin-1, an N-terminal pro-B-type natriuretic peptide, or pro-BNP, <laughs> are elevated. Now, earlier we talked a little bit about the genetics of predisposition, um, genetic uh, influence, unfortunately, is is pretty significant in the development of GDV. What types of breeds experience this most commonly? So your large and giant breed dogs, especially Great Danes, overall incidence in large to giant breed dogs is 6 to 24 percent. In Great Danes, the lifetime risk is 39 to 42 percent. Gosh. 
Mm-hmm. That's a lot bigger. Yeah. So for a Great Dane, if you have a Great Dane, it's like twice the risk of even other giant breeds of dog. Yeah. That's crazy. You think you have your average Great Dane, 42% of them are going to mm-hmm. get a GDV? Yikes. Ah, God. Yeah. Okay. That on your surgery table, too. Mm. <sighs> so other breeds will include uh, your standard poodles, St. Bernard's, Irish Setters, Gordon Setters, Weimariners, Weimariner, Irish Wolfhound, Newfoundland, Akita, German Shepherd Dogs, Dobermans, Collies, Rottweilers, Bernese Mountain Dogs, Boxsters, and Mastiffs. In one study, dogs greater than 40 kicks, aka 88 pounds, have a 148.7 times the risk of GDV compared to dogs that are less than 10 gigs, 22 pounds. So I just want to stop and put that in perspective. So dogs that are that weigh dogs that weigh more than 40 kilograms have about 150 times the risk of dogs that are like less than 20 pounds. Damn. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's crazy. Yep. Uh, middle-aged to older dogs are at higher risk. No sex predilection. Different studies have shown a bunch of different things. I've heard uh, females, but I don't remember where that came from. The, when I looked at the, the literature, it's yeah. all over the place, mm-hmm. which tells me I don't think that we can really say. Yeah. And then with all that said, I'm going to say that, that, that bloat GDV can occur in any type of dog. Yeah. So in my career, I've seen it one time in a West Highland White Terrier, mm-hmm. and I've seen it one time in a pit bull. And we're not talking about a big pit bull. This was like one of those little bitty ones that's like mm-hmm. 20 pounds. Yeah, I've seen it in a Shizu. In a Shizu. In a Shizu. Isn't that crazy? It was weird because it, t- it took a minute. <laughs> we're like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> but yeah, radiographs will tell you. So talk to me about treatment. The first thing is going to be stabilizing the patient. And if you look at your textbooks, essentially it's going to say, if you suspect GDV, start stabilizing the patient before you even take it to radiology. Okay. Um, And I think that that makes sense in various circumstances, depending on your setup. I can tell you that when I work ER, our policy is that any big dog with GI signs, (laughs) they get put, like they literally get put on a gurney, rolled back into the treatment area where radiology is like right there. They like take a tour through radiology and then come straight back. Mm -hmm. So it's not like a protracted x-ray process. It's literally like admission, boop, and now we're on the triage table, okay? So I also think that's reasonable too, mm-hmm. okay? So stabilizing the patient, that's going to be gastric decompression and fluid therapy ASAP. Stick a hose down there. Well, let's, if you let's, can. let's talk about it for a second. <laughs> All right, fluid therapy, number one. In a perfect world, you'd place two IV catheters. They need that much fluid. Just go ahead and put you the two IVs in. Jugular or cephalic is going to be preferred. We want to avoid placing IV catheters in the saphenous veins because venous return from the caudal half of the body is compromised in these patients. Shock doses of crystalloid fluids. You start, you know, with about a quarter of a shock dose and then reassess as you go are going to be indicated. You might need to consider colloids or even hypertonic saline depending on how shitty the patient looks. Get out your emergency medicine textbook. Do not use this podcast to form all of your treatment for an emergency case. Like, get your (laughs) textbooks out. What you're going to aim for here is normalizing the parameters, okay? Heart rate, blood pressure, and perfusion. We're trying to get those more towards normal. In my reading, I saw someone make a statement that was like, 
I don't necessarily talk about stabilizing GDV patients. I talk about optimizing them for surgery because there's not really such a thing as a stable patient who has GDV. It's like, how much better can we get their perfusion and heart rate and blood pressure before we take them to surgery? Like, Mm -hmm. how much better is it possible to get them? Okay, gastric decompression. Uh, Also an emergency situation. Now, you can either sedate the patient and pass an orogastric tube and then lavage, okay? Or you can use a trocar, (laughs) okay? Trocar, you just find the stomach, go, you know, you shave and prep a little air in the skin, and then you just go thunk with the catheter right in, and it'll be like, okay? You talk to different clinicians, they're going to like different things. I myself really like to trocarize them, okay? Because I feel like, it helps me manage my anxiety better. <laughs> and at first I was like really frustrated by that, like frustrated with myself by that. But then I'm like, you know what? I think that's valid. Managing clinician stress is an important part of overall patient care. You know yes. what I'm saying? Yes. Uh, because I just <laughs> worry so much about rupturing the stomach by passing mm-hmm. a tube, which you, that can happen. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's not to say there aren't potential downfalls of you know, using a trocar, but I'm like, you know, let's not get all the sedation mumbo jumbo, get all the equipment out. I can just get a catheter and be like, okay. (laughs) And, you know, you could do both. Okay. Mm -hmm. You could also do both of them. In one study, tubing was successful in 75% of cases and trocar was successful in 86% of cases. Mm -hmm. So I'm just saying, but the trocar was more, a little better (laughs) in that study. Okay. Uh, But there was no significant difference in complication or successes between the two as far as like long-term outcome. Mm -hmm. So while each has different disadvantages, different pros and cons, neither one of them in this study was like, oh, shit, don't do that. Like, so do what you feel the most comfortable with is, is what I would say. Okay. I have occasionally in my life encountered, you know, discussion of passing a you know, an orogastric tube on a non-sedated patient, I can not advocate for that, okay? You, if you're going to pass an orogastric tube, you need to sedate that patient. Sedate the patient if you're going to pass the tube. You mean, you got to put them under anesthesia anyway. Might as well just go ahead. Next, you need to manage blood pressure. So hypotension might not be fully responsive to fluid therapy. So then you're going to consider norepinephrine or dobutamine. Again, what are you going to reach for, JJ? Your emergency book. That's exactly right. Your emergency book. And and then you're going to take them to surgery, okay? So once you're in surgery, you start by decompressing the stomach the rest of the way because you're not going to get it fully decompressed without surgery. You know, like you're just trying to buy some time mm-hmm. before you get in into the operating room. So finish decompressing the stomach. Then you want to reposition the stomach and the spleen. And then you want to look at them and see... Can we leave these in here? (laughs) Are they a shit show? Are they starting to die? Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, when you're looking at the stomach, the greater curvature is going to be the most common area to be compromised. What you're looking for is gray, black, green, or dark purple tissue. Those things are bad. Take it out. Okay. So you might be looking at doing a partial gastrectomy, meaning removing part of the stomach that's going to die, and or taking the spleen out. Okay. Mm And then you're going to perform a gastropexy. That means you're tacking the stomach to the body wall. That does not prevent future um, dilation, okay? It will theoretically prevent future rotation of the stomach, okay? Performing a gastropexy at the time of GDV surgery reduces recurrence from 80% chance 
down to less than 5%. So sweet. Don't skip that part. Mm-mm. That's an integral part of the surgery. Yes. If you if you own one of these dogs that are predisposed to this, you might want to, you know, have that done. Yeah, you're talking about like prophylactic mm-hmm. tech. We're going to talk about that here in just a minute. I have some data, but I don't remember off the top of my head. So let's hop down before okay. I misstate something. All right, then we need to manage any cardiac arrhythmias. So arrhythmias might be from underlying electrolyte problems. They might be from hemostatic issues. They might be from acid-base disturbances. You want to treat the underlying issue. And if you're getting ventricular tachycardia that's consistent over 150 beats per minute and or premature ventricular contractions, you're going to reach for your lidocaine CRI in that situation. Again, JJ, what are you going to consult? Contact your emergency book. That's right. Will you say it again? (laughs) (laughs) Consult your emergency book. That's exactly right. Um, You might consider using antibiotics, especially if, like, the GI tract is perforated, okay? If you suspect that there's significant compromise of the gastric mucosal barrier, then it would be reasonable, too. And then pain control, very important, pre-op, intra-op, and post-op. You want to use uh, multimodal, meaning multiple forms of pain control, and specifically in multiple sources. They talked about preferring a CRI of lidocaine, ketamine, and an opiate, like morphine or fentanyl. JJ, what are they going to consult to get the dosing on that? The emergency book. The emergency textbook, that's right. I would not use NSAIDs in these patients. Oh, no. Do not use NSAIDs in these patients. What are you thinking? (laughs) And then finally, gastric protectants. Okay, so antiemetics, you know, like little serenia, never hurt nobody. Mm -hmm. Okay. H2 antagonists like famotidine or protein pump inhibitors like omeprazole, you know, something like that. And then promotility agents like cisapride or metoclopramide might help with that gastric emptying to kind of get the GI tract back into working mode quicker. And that's sounds pretty straightforward, but it's actually kind of complicated Mm -hmm. to do all of those things quickly, efficiently, and all at one time. Yeah, that's your whole morning, right? That's right. (laughs) Yeah, or your whole, sometimes your whole damn day, really, Uh if you're in in your general practice Mm -hmm. and you're dealing with like a staff who is not super familiar with these types of cases, it might be the thing that derails your whole your whole thing, the whole 12-hour yep. shift might be like... Yep, we cancel some appointments. That's right. <laughs> we got a balloon animal. That's exactly right. So what's involved with monitoring? Well, you need to be cautious because there are several types of post-op complications that we can see. All right, sepsis, disseminated intravascular coagulation, gastritis, so inflammation of the stomach. Those cardiac arrhythmias that we talked about tend to persist a couple of days or they might not even be noted right away. And then they're like, surprise, <laughs> surprise, surprise. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> um, you might, uh, you know, you might have reperfusion injury to the areas of the body that were cut off from blood supply. You might have gastric necrosis. Gastric perforation can happen. Even if there's not a perf when you go to surgery, it can happen later. Thumbs down, okay? And then sudden blood loss, like all of a sudden now. Maybe the spleen looked okay, but now that motherfucker's bleeding in there. Mm -hmm. So you need to watch for all these things. Gastric perforation has been reported up to five days after surgery, which sounds super unfair. So you need to watch there. And then 
you need to monitor the hell out of the vitals and stuff here. So, so what you're going to be wanting to look at really often in these patients, and I'm going to say not just like overnight, but I'm talking for, for the next like two to three days, you want to look at their vitals, electrolytes, their acid-base status, their clotting times, lactate readings, their blood sugar, okay, PCV total solids, their blood pressure, and ECG. I, you know, these guys at the specialty hospital will have them on telemetry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's your prognosis? Okay. Uh, so prognosis is more challenging to talk about because historically, if you read some of the older studies, the prognosis looked pretty shitty. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about in a second why I think that might have been. Okay. But so overall, current mortality is somewhere between 10 and 45%. And that is a big damn range. Mm hmm. There's a big difference between almost half your patients dying and only 10% of them dying, okay? But that's where we're at. <laughs> you know, some of these studies that report on mortality include dogs who were euthanized because of their condition. Mm-hmm. So what I did is I pulled two separate studies for us to talk about. Each one of them has about 500 dogs. So that's a pretty good study. So in the first study of almost 500 dogs, about 64% survived to discharge. And if you exclude the dogs that were euthanized pre-op, that number improves to 83%. Hmm. In that second study of almost 500 dogs, again, this is a separate study. It just happened to have a similar number of dogs. 79.3% of patients who had surgery survived to discharge. Okay. So with those two recent studies in good controlled situations and significant numbers of dogs in each study... You know, it looks like if you if you take the dog to surgery, if the owners can afford to take the dog to surgery, they might have more like an 80 percent chance of survival. OK, but to the best of my ability to to tell, those studies are like at the referral level. Mm-hmm. OK, we're not talking about 500 dogs who had the surgery in a general practice in rural Alabama. Mm-hmm. We'll pick on our own state, okay? <laughs> these, these were like at a referral institution. Yeah. And and so then that brings me to one of the reasons that I kind of wonder, you know, if the statistics on GDV recovery and, and prognosis have maybe been skewed in the past because for a long time, the availability of like a referral level type of care was low. Mm-hmm. And um, as the care options have increased, it, it does make me wonder if more and more of these are being performed at a referral level with higher level of care and therefore m- more likely to survive. I cannot point to research to substantiate that. That is my pro- probably biased opinion. But I mean, I'm just saying. Yeah. <laughs> what I've observed is that in my time working closely with specialists, I no longer think of GDV as a 50-50 thing, and I definitely did when I was mostly exposed to dogs who were operated in general private practice. (laughs) So that's what I will say about that. (laughs) Negative prognostic indicators, all right, if you've got gastric necrosis, if a gastric resection had to be performed, if a splenectomy had to be performed. If the lactate levels are elevated and they do not respond to fluid therapy, if hyperthermia or hypothermia are present at the time of presentation, or if they have any type of cardiac arrhythmia, all of those are associated with a worse chance of survival. Let's talk about prevention. 
you can, at the time of your, if you have one of these type of dogs, at the time of, if you got a female at the time of spay, go ahead and do that. Um, uh, yeah. Gastropexy. Yeah, prophylactic gastropexy. Mm-hmm. And I would say at the time of neuter, too. Yeah, you know what I mean? go ahead. This is one thing, I'm going to be honest with you now, Chris, I always say like when I was in vet school as if that was recent. Now it's not been recent at all, right? I just been out for 15 years. It's been kind of a, a minute. But I don't remember this being emphasized when I was in vet school, mm-hmm. like at all. I don't, it was not really even on my radar of things to even consider. And when I worked, you know, my first jobs, like on, on like the unlicensed assistant side, and then even when I transitioned into my early career as a vet, you know, we saw lots of pretty big dogs, you know, for spays and stuff over the years. And it's not really something that we significantly talked about, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, and it wasn't really until um, I, I started working with one colleague in particular who I, I think had had some personal experiences and was like, I'm tacking every damn dog over 50 pounds, you know, mm-hmm. like any damn thing that might be more than 50 pounds, like it's getting a damn prophylactic, you know, I'm going to offer it. And so I thought that was really interesting that I felt like, I mean, we really did not talk about that in vet school that I can remember, like at all. Yeah, it wasn't something that I remember that was, you know, pushed or recommended in places where I've worked up until like the last maybe two places I've worked at. Mm-hmm. Definitely in the maybe like the last decade or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so JJ, I said that I had some statistics for you, and then they're not in here. I'm sorry. Maybe I was remembering that before. It might be challenging for us to know how effective prophylactic gastropexy is, because you know, it doesn't prevent them from necessarily getting the distension part. Again, it prevents the volvulus part. So I, I don't know that we can know, like, how effective is this? But because the torsion part of the GDV is one of the more damaging type of parts, I think that it's probably pretty beneficial. Now, if you have a dog that's been tacked and they're still bloating, it doesn't mean that they can't tors. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's just that it's less likely, but you still have to then manage the distension and everything. So you're still talking about the first part of what we talked about, the IV fluids, the monitoring the blood pressure, the getting them decompressed. Yeah. They might still have to go to surgery to get fully decompressed. Like, uh, it does not eliminate the need for surgery, but we think, or the thought is that it makes it more easy for them to recover. Mm-hmm. And I apologize that I don't have any data on that. Um, but I will look for some and present it in future episodes if I'm able to find anything definitive. Uh, maybe if there was a study about like surgical outcomes from dogs that had been previously pexied versus ones that hadn't, I did not encounter that when I was looking for this episode. Yeah. Don't breed dogs who have GDV or whose first degree relatives have had GDV. Yeah. So because there is a significant genetic component to this, one mm-hmm. of the main ways of prevention is just to not breed the the dog lines in which uh, we see it. Mm-hmm. Don't do it. So, JJ, yep. what happened in our case? So immediately after confirmation of GDV on radiographs, uh, they took the patient to the treatment area where IV access was obtained and the stomach was trocarized with an 18-gauge IV catheter. Boluses of IV crystalloids were administered to address hypotension. 
and opiate pain control was administered. Um, CBC and biochemistry profiles were unremarkable. Lactate was five. Okay. Not too shabby. Okay. Okay. Uh, fast ultrasound of abdomen showed no evidence of free fluid, so bonus. Okay. Patient was prepped for surgical intervention, and afternoon appointments were canceled for the veterinarian <laughs> on duty. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds Wipe right. Wipe that board clean. That sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> Pain was managed with a opiate lidocaine ketamine CRI, along with balanced anesthesia administered, including inhaled anesthetics, delivered via endotracheal tube. Uh, in surgery, the stomach was further decompressed and repositioned as needed. Yeah. <laughs> the stomach appeared viable. Yay. Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, however, significant discoloration was noted on the spleen and splenectomy was performed due to concerns over viability. Mm, fair. Okay. They also pexied the hell out of that dog. Good. Did the gastropexy. That's mm-hmm. good. Uh, the abdomen was lavaged and closed. All right. What happened uh, after surgery? So following recovery, she was transferred to the local emergency clinic where overnight care was possible. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, this is always like a, a pro-con situation here. You know, like here we have a patient presenting to a general hospital who, you know, needs an urgent procedure. So they like cancel the afternoon to accommodate it. But then the question is, who's going to care for the dog? Because, like, surgery isn't like poof, right off into the sunset. Yeah. You need substantial monitoring. So transfer to ER. I mean, I think that's very reasonable, Mm -hmm. especially after spending, like, most of my formative years as a vet. Like, there wasn't a place right up the road where you could just send a dog to have CDV surgery Mm -hmm. during the day. Like, it was you. Like, you're doing the surgery. Uh, whether you've done one or not, it's you because there isn't anyone else. And then after hours, you just have to take them to the local ER. Or if there isn't one, stay up high with them. <laughs> you know, that's just the way that it was. So I think this is very reasonable. I would say that if this particular situation was playing out in a city where there is, you know, maybe a local specialty hospital that takes surgeries 24-7, 365, Like, do we need to pause three seconds and have the discussion with the owner of, do we need to try to get this patient over there for surgery or not? I mean, I think that's like a game time decision based on how shitty the patient is, Mm -hmm. because sometimes they're just not stable enough to travel. So it's one of those things. Sometimes you can also like intercept them on the phone. So like when this person called and was like, hey, my German shepherd, red flag, is doing this red flag and is, (laughs) you know, having dry heaving red flag, then you could be like, like go straight to the ER Mm -hmm. um, if they're okay with that. You know, that might be a reasonable option. But I mean, I think doing surgery at the general practice and then once they're a stable post-op patient, hop, skipping and jumping straight on over to the ER for continued. I mean, I think that's fine. Yeah. I mean, it it happens. Yeah. Sometimes it's just the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. So at the emergency clinic overnight, she developed some PVCs, which mm-hmm. were addressed with lidocaine CRI. And that's why we send them to the ER overnight. Yep. That's right. Other things, but yeah. <laughs> okay. So she was hospitalized at the ER, which was a 24-hour facility, for 48 hours following surgery and ultimately was discharged home on oral tramadol, gabapentin, serenia, omeprazole, and sulcralfate. All right. So it was good that they were able to get her to a place where they're just open all the time Mm -hmm. so they didn't have to bounce her back and forth. Because that was one of my least favorite things about the whole 
like daytime general practice, nighttime only ER was like, now you're having to like load up your gigantic fucking abdominal surgery Mm -hmm. twice a day and all its accoutrement, you know, and then like transported across town like that sucks. Yeah, Yeah, pet owners hate that crap too. Oh, yeah. 90% 90% of the time, they're the ones doing the transporting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's it's a lot of stress because you don't want to see your animal like that. Mm-mm. It's yeah. just, it's uncomfortable for everybody. So, yeah, I mean, I think if we could get the patient ideal situation, get them someplace and let them sit, you mm-hmm. know. So I like that they didn't try to bump this dog back and forth, that they yeah. just like took it to the ER and then like, let's just let him handle it. Yep. Because honestly, a lot of general practices don't necessarily have things like telemetry or they Mm -hmm. might not have staff that's used to like intensive care monitoring and things. Mm -hmm. Maybe they have adequate surgical and anesthetic capabilities, but the like after hours monitoring is just not it. Or maybe they don't have the staff to have someone dedicated to watching this dog 24-7 for the next three days. So I think that's a good choice. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I'm so glad that our little German Shepherd did well. Yeah. It was fantastic. Caught it in time. Well, JJ, let's talk about Snuffy. Oh, Lord. Uh, We mentioned kind of earlier in the episode, you know, that you have had a dog who has bloated. Just one, right? Just Snuffy? Just Snuffy. Just Snuffy. And so... um, Her ass was enough. I know. It was a whole situation. It was a debacle. She was boarding, right, when mm-hmm. uh, when it happened. So do you want to share anything yeah. about my golf memory here? Yeah, um, yeah we um, had just gotten back from vacation. So she and our other dog had boarded for a week. And as I was uh, unloading suitcases, I tweaked my back. So I was supposed to... I was actually supposed to work that day and just get the dogs after I worked. But Mm -hmm. I was walking like a 90-year-old grandma, and um, that's not really an option for teching. Mm -hmm. So I um, tacked on a day of being off, and I was actually at the parking lot at the doctor's office and um, got a call that Snuffy was bloating, and they were taking her. As long as I was cool with it, they were taking her to surgery right then. I said, um, yes. Uh, Luckily, one of our kennel attendants, he's also an accredited assistant, uh, Mr. James, shout out, my hero. (laughs) He uh, was patrolling the runs and noticed her in the the full throats, (laughs) the signs of the panting, the big belly, and brought her straight up. And they did radiographs and then took her straight to surgery. Pretty much they were prepping and and getting ready to go when they had me on the phone. Mm -hmm. So I was like, yep, go, go, go. We got back to the clinic and they were in surgery still. So she was, they caught it pretty early. So she didn't have any issues with any, you know, necrosis or anything like that. They decompressed, tacked her, and uh, she recovered and was doing really, really well for 13 days. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, literally the day before she was supposed to get her sutures out, she bloated again. Mm-hmm. And she, I think we went to the emergency. And she, she sorry, uh, when you say she bloated again, she got the dilatation and the volvules or just the dilatation? Just the dilatation. Just the dilatation I, I don't time. think she ever torched again. Okay. Um, it was the dilatation. And she, so she, again, I'm working off memory. 
Um, I know I brought her back to the clinic I was working for at the time. And I know I went to the emergency clinic twice. Because she had at least one more surgery, didn't she? Yes. Yeah. Um, she she bloated another probably four or five times. Yeah. Sorry. I guess I've blocked that from my memory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I had to until I was just I was reminiscing as we were going through. I'm like, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> there was a couple times she did. And then she like belched and belched and belched and belched. And recovered it on her own. Mm -hmm. But that was only twice. She had to go in. There was one night, it was like 11 o'clock at night, and the panting woke me up. Mm -hmm. And she was looking like a balloon animal. I mean, the what it reminded me of is, uh, you know, um, I'm sure most people have seen Shrek when Shrek blows up the frog mm -hmm. and makes a balloon out of it. And that just made me think of her. <laughs> so We're she was snappy. our own little balloon animal. She got decompressed. She ended up having a second surgery. They adjusted her tack because mm -hmm. uh, it was, I think they said it was maybe a little bit displaced. So the stomach was, instead of being in its natural position, was a little bit more horizontal. Okay. Yeah. And so they tacked on the opposite side, I believe. Mm -hmm. That was the board of surgeon, Dr. Plunkett, mm -hmm. that did that one. Yep. And we tried different things because I was like trying to figure out what kind of food to. And finally, it was her tears and taters. Yeah, I remember. I th I don't know. I don't remember the exact circumstances, but I kind of came in somewhere in the middle of all mm -hmm. that. And we were looking at like, what the hell? <laughs> what the hell like, um, what can we do? This? Yeah. Because and, she was on all the drugs. She was on, I know she was on Reglan, Omeprazole. Anything and everything you could throw at her, mm -hmm. we were th already throwing at her. I think I read, I think I had done some like deep dive on Vin or something and mm -hmm. found like one case report where the patient improved on a um, limited ingredient diet. So we were like, try okay. it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I Add tried it to the list. <laughs> I tried ZD on her and that made her worse. I mean, yeah. she was horribly gassy on that. I don't, one of the times she, she bloated again may have been on that, but. I was just like, oh, no, let's not do this. But we got the, the venison and potato mm -hmm. royal canin. And she did find it. She that, did find no more bloating. And we uh, we got her on like chronic anxiety meds, too, after that, right? Um, Yeah, she was on trazodone. At first, we were just kind of giving it as needed mm -hmm. because she definitely had separation anxiety. Yeah. I mean, it was she ate a door. It was pretty rough. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't put her in a crate. She flipped out if you put her in a crate. And would just, I mean, I thought she was going to break her teeth just trying to escape it. She did okay with trazodone. I think there was a period, yeah, there was a period of time where I wasn't working. I was at home a lot more. Mm -hmm. And I took her off of it. And she was fine. She as was long fine. as somebody was yeah. at home, she was right as rain. Poor but if thing. you left her alone, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, bad news bears. But. Uh, when I went back to go into work again, the trazodone didn't work quite as well. Mm -hmm. And we were giving it to her at that point. It was all the time just to help. And um, she never got to the point where she ate a door again. But she was definitely like she would she would drool and pace and whine and cry. We would have the little Furbo camera on her and try to talk to her. And we tried to, you know, any time we could take her with us or have a pet sitter, we would. And she never boarded after <laughs> Yeah. After she oh, turned yeah. into the, the first balloon animal, so so yeah, she was God love her. She she had she had issues. 
Well, when I think about that list of, you know, um, kind of warning signs or whatever, Mm -hmm. when I think about the list of things that maybe predispose, you know, she definitely um, was a deep-chested dog for sure. I know. I figured golden retrievers need to be on that list. Yeah, it wasn't in the um, Mm -hmm. in the. Golden Retrievers were not, like, listed in the specific breed predispositions that I found. But I think that the ones on the bigger end of the spectrum probably should be. Yeah. Um, She was Mm middle-aged, right? We don't know really about, like, a trauma history or anything like that. No. um, She definitely... (laughs) Mental trauma. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) She definitely had some some odd, like, when we first got her, she was petrified of being left outside. Mm -hmm. Like, she... She would go outside and, I mean, pee as just as quick as she possibly could. Mm. And she would only get, like, her booty just off the steps and pee and then or poop and then run back in because she didn't want to be left out there. Poor thing. Oh, so, yeah. I don't know. I mean, we got her. She was already six. Mm-hmm. So I don't know much about her history, history at all. Motility disorders, vomiting. Had she had weird GI stuff before this? Mm-hmm. No. Not, not really. The only thing I can think of is I always thought that her stools were small considering her size. I mean, when I got her, she was 90 pounds. Yeah, she was a big girl. Yeah, mm-hmm. we had to, we, she had, we, I got her down 30 pounds. It took a couple of months. Yeah. But, or, you, well, better I mean, part of a year. <laughs> a couple of months, yeah. yeah. And I know we had spayed her, but I can't, I don't remember when the spay happened versus when the, because I think she was spayed and maybe, around March or April, and then when she bloated, it was July to August. Yeah. Somewhere around in there. The same year? Mm-hmm. The same year. This is all the first year you got mm-hmm. her. Woo! Yeah. Um, and then um, stress, check. She was boarding. Mm-hmm. And then fearful, anxious temperament. <laughs> Jackety, yeah. check, check. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Poor thing. She was a sweet girl. Did but, she man. have to have, uh, well, you said they kind of caught it early, so she didn't have to have like a splenectomy, gastrectomy, mm. nothing like that. No. But still, very stressful, very expensive. Yeah, that was a two-year care payoff care credit bill. <laughs> I got care credit just because of that. Because of that. that. whole issue. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was, boy, yeah. Between the, I was grateful for everybody that worked on her because between the, she had two surgeries and lots of care in between, but. It just, I just remember being so angry because she had done so well through that whole recovery. I mean, literally 13 days through, no problems. Didn't bother incision. Her incision healed beautifully. Everything was just tracking along beautifully. And then, bam, not beautiful no more. Mm-hmm. Balloon animal. Balloon animal. <laughs> well, so I think that pretty much sums up GDV. I mean, it it is technically kind of a straightforward thing it's just terrifying and bad and a lot of things all at one time double and expensive boil, <laughs> double bubble toil and trouble double, double toil and trouble oh boy well so um i will post you know the sources in the show notes and on social media as always uh if you have stories questions cases or anything else you'd like for us to read please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And it's at introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help.
Show do. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye-bye.